Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning, friends. Um, thank you for coming out this morning. Thank you also for tuning in if you are watching from home. I know a couple of people have wanted to come, but just um, maybe tired from work yesterday and you're anticipating the long weekend. Um, Easter season is a bit like watching a movie that you've watched before. You know, maybe, I don't know if you are into movies, but when you're when you watching a movie for the first time and you see the actor and the bulls chasing each other. You really don't know how it's going to end, right? You don't know what's coming next. You don't know what's going on. And so you're anticipating. The emotions are raw. You are reacting in real time. But then you watch the end and you see that, no, he doesn't really die. Like, everything actually ends well. Like, everything goes as planned. And so now you are re-watching the movie again, for those of us that like to re-watch movies. When you are rewatching again, you don't feel the same set of emotions. You don't feel the same way. I know Easter is a little bit like that. It reminds me of um, the 2005 under-20 um, World Youth Championships. Now, I'm useless at football. Like, I'm useless. Um, and you can blame my parents and blame my wife, too, because when we got married, my wife was, an, um, was a Chelsea fan, ardent Chelsea fan. And I begged her, like, teach me. Let's watch this thing together. Coach me. But no, she was laughing at me. But anyway, I make it a duty to kind of watch Nigeria's matches. And so 2005 was, 2005, I think, is one of the best outings Nigeria has ever had because we only really lost one game throughout the entire um, World Cup that we played then. So 2005 was when Messi came out to the global stage for the first time. Um, it was that same World Cup that launched the careers of Tai Taiwo, if anybody remembers him, um, Mikel Obi, and you know, a lot of other people. Nigeria had been playing well. Like, round of 16, we won. And then we came to quarterfinals. Nigeria was playing against the Netherlands. We scored very quickly. And then, you know, a little while later, as always happens in Nigerian football, they equalized. But this time, the guys held out. They held out till the end. And so we had to go to injury time. And then it was also a draw there, and so we had to do penalty kicks. Now, it was like, it is, I think it's, it's one of, that penalty kick is one of the longest penalty kicks in the history of African football. On YouTube, the entire um, playout, um, the entire shootout, rather, of the penalty kicks is about 30 minutes. So you can imagine the tension. We would score, they would score, we would score, they would score, we would score, they would score. I remember watching with a couple of guys there. What we did was we packed all the Bibles in the house. <laughs> and we put it on the TV set, like, God, you must intervene. We cannot lose this match. They would score, we would score, they would score, we would score. And then it so happened, like, the tension was palpable. Like, you could touch it. You could slice it into two. So what did NTA do? Because, like, then it was, it was still NTA. NTA switched off. 
signal because they knew that people like detention like you we even heard after like someone died like they jumped <laughs> off and then something happened to them so nta ended the, the, the broadcast and so we didn't know what was going on and then eventually you heard nigeria has won hey, everybody's shouting everybody's jubilating and we would make it all the way to the finals in that game where we unfortunately met Messi, who put us in our place. <laughs> but here's the point. By the time, because we knew how that match was ending, by the time we were watching, it wasn't the same set of emotions that we're feeling. And you know, that's what happens at Easter. Everybody knows, oh, the story ends well. Jesus actually resurrects. Jesus actually, everything goes well. He wins, he conquers. What do we need Good Friday for? We know how the story ends. But you see, if we bring our minds back to what it was in that moment, in that instant, where it seemed like the light of the world was being quenched, where it seemed like there was no longer hope, where it seemed like darkness had prevailed, we'll get closer to what it means that we can actually have good emerge from this Good Friday. You see, we often remember Jesus' death like, and in fact, I, I, I don't have anything against those of us that carry, um, that wear jewelry on our neck and stuff, but sometimes we just carry the cross around. Whereas in the first century where that happened, it's a bit like saying that the person who you love and honor and respect and worship is a man who was shot dead on the barbage. Christmas, um, Easter is not a sanitized show, friends. Easter is when we remember what it costs God to atone for our sins. And so we're going to look at this sermon today that I've titled, no, actually, not me. Um, it was Tomiwa and, um, and Mojirola that titled A Word of Surrender. And we see three things that emerge from this text, and we'll do so very briefly. We see that Jesus was delivered up. He was surrendered by humans. Jesus was surrendered by God. But Jesus was also surrendered to God. Jesus was surrendered by humans. Jesus was surrendered by God. But Jesus was also surrendered to God. The first one, surrendered by humans. Now, when we think about the death of Jesus, we usually think about two culprits that come to mind, Judas and Peter. And even if you're not a Christian, you know that when someone calls you a Judas, they're not saying you're the best guy in the world. They're actually saying, like, you're a traitor. You see, because Judas is the one, like we all know, that sold his lord, his master, his friend for 30 pieces of silver. And Peter is the one who was shaking in his pants when asked, that, do you know Jesus? And he denied knowing Christ. And so all of us know that story. But you see, just like Mojurala read for us this morning, there are a bit more characters in this chapter that we see this morning. And so I want to quickly just... Um, um, give us a little bit of a backstory that leads up to the moment we find ourselves in. And so in chapter 22, chapter 22 ends with Jesus being arrested and being conducted and having a trial, you know, conducted for him. Probably the worst, um, most shameful trial in the history of humanity. The Jewish leaders had called Jesus, they had brought him before them, and basically they said Jesus was guilty of certain crimes, certain trumped-up charges that they had invented against him. But because the Jews were under Roman rule, they really couldn't crucify or put Jesus to death. So what did they do? They carried Jesus to Pilate. And so we see 
them before Pilate in chapter 23, verse 1. And then they get to Pilate and they say, oh, Jesus is trying to subvert the nation. Basically, they're accusing Jesus of treason. But you see, what they are doing here is that what they found Jesus guilty of before them was religious charges. Jesus had spoken defamatory words. Jesus had spoken blasphemous words about himself and God. But now they bring him to Pilate. And then they are saying, no, no, no. They change the charges and say, Jesus is not doing something religiously bad. Jesus is doing something politically bad. They were doing everything they could to actually just make sure that Jesus would be crucified. But Pilate is not buying this. Pilate is not accepting this because we know that after he inter interacts with Jesus in verse 4, Pilate says, no, I've not found anything wrong with this guy. But then they say basically that, Pilate, if you don't find anything wrong with this guy, you are not a friend of Caesar, you are not a friend of our nation. And so Pilate decides he doesn't want to have anything to do with this. He doesn't really want to spend more time dealing with this Jewish matter. So he says, oh, Jesus is from a region called Galilee. So he sends Jesus to Herod, the ruler of the region Galilee where Jesus comes from. And we are told that Herod looks like he might actually be um, a, someone who is interested in Jesus because in verse 8 we are told that he's been expecting, been eager to see Jesus. But that hope is cut short when we read that, no, he's only actually seeking Jesus because he's hoping, has been expecting that Jesus will kind of do a miracle. And so when Jesus doesn't do what they want, Herod and his guys and the Jewish leaders, they make fun of Jesus and they say, Nah, we can't deal with this. And so they send Jesus back to Pilate. And you can tell that Pilate is disappointed. Pilate had been hoping that somehow Herod would take care of this mess because he doesn't have time for this kind of thing. And so he, um, he sends, he, he goes, sorry, is it fine now? Okay. And so in verse 13, Jesus comes back to Pilate. And then Pilate calls an emergency meeting and he's hoping that somehow he can, they can find a way out of this mess. And Pilate has, he kind of strikes a deal with the Jewish leaders and says, let me flog him. Maybe if I flog him, you guys will allow him to go. Maybe if I flog him, you guys would, would you know, you, know you, just, you just let this mess die off. But the Jewish leaders aren't having any of it. In fact, they instigate the crowd, the people who are watching. And in verse 18, we are told that the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Because Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. And so wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appeals to the people again, verse 21. But they keep shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. But like many of us, Pilate is a man who has a subconscious. He's, he's like, no, like, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. This guy hasn't done anything wrong. So we're told in a text that for the third time, he tells them, this man hasn't done anything wrong. Why do you want to kill him? Well, verses 23 to 25 tell us something insightful. It says, with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. And so Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus is at the receiving end of the worst 
political trial and injustice in the history of the world. He has been framed for an offense he did not commit. He has been taken before a judge who is too spineless to actually set him free and do something about it. And who actually then supports the very people who have accused him. And rather than ruling in favor of Jesus, the man says, this is what you guys want. So he hands Jesus over to the people. Jesus is handed over by people who are scheming and plotting and lying and deceiving just so they can get what they want. And you see, when we look at this story, we can look at this story and say, this is terrible because it is terrible. This is bad because it is bad. But you see, this has been given to us not just to lament how much Jesus was a victim to an unjust system, not even for us to think about some of the parallels between our own injustice in society and injustice in Jesus' time, because many of us know that in our nation and in many parts of the world, even in supposedly good parts of the world, justice actually goes to those who can actually buy it. But that's not the reason, ultimate reason why this story is given to us. See, friends, this story is given to us to see that we are not just people who are observing what is happening to Jesus, but we are people who are participating in what is happening to Jesus. It is not just that it's the sin of other people that has led Jesus to the cross. It is also that it is our sinful selves, active in rebellion against God, that has led Jesus to the cross. And we know this because the Bible tells us, the Bible tells us in Psalm 51, for instance, that we have been conceived in iniquity and there is something wrong with us that makes us rebel against God. But friends, we also know it because of our own actions. We know it because of the steps that we take and the things that we have done. Friends, isn't it true that we're like the Jewish leaders in the way sometimes that we lie and twist the truth for our own ends? How many times have you ever said to someone, do as I say, not as I do? Of course, we haven't killed people. Of course, we haven't sent someone unjustly to death. But how many times have we actually plotted in office and told a white lie just so that we can actually just get on in the career that we are in? How many times have we manipulated people so that they can do for us what we want so that we can progress and pass through life? It is not just the Jewish leaders who are manipulating and scheming and lying. It is also we ourselves. Oh, we see Pilate and we can say how much Pilate knew deep down in his heart that Jesus was innocent and how Pilate should have done something, should actually have done something. And we don't know ultimately why Pilate did what he did. Maybe Pilate was afraid of the people. Maybe Pilate was trying to prevent a rebellion. And he knew that if something happened, his job with the Roman Caesar was at stake. We don't know what happened, but we know ultimately that Pilate refused to follow through on his convictions. Before you judge Pilate, can I ask you to just look in the mirror? What do you see? Who do you see there? How many times do we fail to follow through on things that we actually have convictions about? You just said something to someone. Oh, no, it is bad for you to do this. And yet you find yourself in that same circumstance. And somehow you think, yeah, because of this reason, it's okay. I can be excused to actually do this thing. Or maybe you're a teenager. 
in this room or you're watching online and you know because your parents have told you stuff that you shouldn't do, but somehow, yeah, my friends will laugh at me. People will think a certain way about me. You end up doing the very thing that you're not supposed to do. Pilate is not just the only one who hands Jesus over to be wrongfully killed, friends. We are willing participants every time we refuse to follow through on what we know is right to do. Every time we kind of just lie on, on the tax sheet so that we don't have to pay as much as we can. Every time someone asks us for a favor and we say, I really can't do it, even though you know deep down that you should. But look at the crowd. Maybe they were poor people. Maybe they needed some money. And so maybe they had been bribed by the leaders. Or maybe they were just having fun. But whatever it is, they chose a simple person, a person who had been condemned, a person who should have been condemned, a person who ought to take the punishment. They chose that person over the righteous man, Jesus Christ. And you see, this is what is at the core of sin. It is a replacing God with something else. It is that we sometimes come to God and say, no, I don't really know what God wants, or I don't really like what God wants. I want to choose something else. But some of us, some of us are so good that no, we actually don't think that way in our hearts. And so we like to say that we are sitting on the fence. We are straddling the fence. We don't want to go full on for Jesus, but we also don't want to go full on for the devil. But you see, friends, the fence belongs to the devil as well. And every time we, we refuse to follow God 100% and do what God wants all the way, we are choosing something else above God. We are replacing Barabbas with Christ. But maybe one of the saddest ones that we actually see in this story is Herod. Herod actually wants to see Jesus. Can you imagine that? Herod actually has been eager. We are told in verse, 20, in verse 8 of chapter 23, he has been eager to meet with Christ. But he really wants to meet with Christ just for his own benefit and gain. He really wants to meet with Christ so that Christ can do something for him. And friends, many of us, sometimes we are like that. We love Jesus. We come to church. We want to engage with the things of God. We want to even learn a lot about God, but we're doing so ultimately because we want Jesus, a genie in a lamp that can serve us anytime we want him to. But Jesus won't have that. Jesus hasn't come to do miracles for us ultimately. Jesus hasn't come to serve our every whim and every desire. Jesus has come to actually be Lord. And like that song says, if he is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. And so a preacher who is now dead named John Stott said this in a book. I'll just read this. It says, Herod and Pilate, Gentiles and Jews, had together conspired against Jesus. More important still, we ourselves are also guilty. If we were in their place, we would have done what they did. Indeed, we have done it. For whenever we turn away from Christ, we are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. We too sacrifice Jesus to our greed like Judas, to our envy like the priest, to our ambition like Pilate. Were you there when they crucified my Lord, the old Negro spiritual asked, and we must answer, yes, we were there. 
Not as spectators only, but as participants, guilty participants, plotting, scheming, betraying, bargaining, and handing him over to be crucified. We may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our attempts will be as futile as his. Friends, for there is blood on our hands. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. Indeed, only the man who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim its share in its grace. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we must see it as something done by us. This story is not just a story of what happened 2,000 years ago. This is a story of how we have lived our lives in active rebellion against God. Why do we get so angry, viscerally angry, anytime we hear about rape? It is not just because somebody has done something against the law. Somebody has broken the law. It is ultimately because we know that this is a violation of a person, a person made in the image of God, a person who ought to have a right to choose, a person who ought to be tended for and cared for, and you have violated this person. Something turns in our stomachs when we hear about that, and that is the exact same thing that sin is, friends. Sin is not just the breaking of God's commandments. Sin is a violation of the person of God. So Romans 3.23, which many of us may have heard about, it says, all have sinned. Oh, friends, it's not just those soldiers who put Jesus to death. It's not just Judas who paid who, who collected money um, for, for Christ, for selling Christ. It's not just Peter who denied Christ. It is all of us. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so we see that Jesus is surrendered by human beings to die. But secondly, Jesus is also surrendered by God. Verse 44 of our text tells us something rather interesting. It says, Jesus hung on the cross for about three hours in the afternoon. And throughout that time, there was darkness over the whole land. And you see, if this were a geography class, we would be talking about how solar eclipses happen. Oh, solar eclipses happen when, there is, when the, the moon comes in between the sun and the earth. And so that was how there was darkness. But this is not a geography class. Luke actually tells us this because something deeper is happening here. You see, in the Old Testament, one of the signs that you could know that God was actually judging his people is that there will be darkness over the land. And so in some of the passages in the prophets, God said that there was coming a day, a day of the Lord, when God would visit his people in judgment. And part of the signs and part of the ways you would know that God was judging his people is by darkness being over the whole land. And Luke is writing this, not for us to just see this as a geographical fact or something that actually happened only, but for us to see that Jesus is hanging on the cross there as judgment, receiving, receiving the judgment that we ought to have received by God. And you see, friends, what this tells us ultimately is that even though Jesus was handed over by human beings, Jesus was also handed over to death by God. 
And you may be thinking, no, I thought Emmanuel, you just said that it was our sin that put him there. Yes, that's true. But you see, God also, God the Father also sent him there as well. And you see, there's no contradiction between these two things because, in fact, we see in the Bible, Peter, who had betrayed Jesus Christ and who eventually will be restored, when he's preaching at the commission of the church on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he says, This man, Jesus Christ, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Oh, you see, friends, the redemption that Christ brings, the death of Christ on the cross was not an afterthought by God. God was not reacting to our brokenness and our sin and all, all of the things that have happened in the world and he, was, he called the divine counsel. How can we quickly try to fix this? God in his eternal mind had planned that Jesus Christ would bring about the redemption that actually saves all of us and saves the whole earth. Again, we see in the book of Acts as well, as the church gathers, as they are praying, they, they were praying to God in Acts chapter 4, 27 to 28, and one of the things they said is that, God, you, have, you were the one who foreordained, you predetermined all these things to take place. And if you read through the storyline of the Bible, you see this again and again, hints and pieces here and there about how Jesus Christ ultimately will be the one who would save and bring redemption to mankind. In Genesis chapter 3, just as human beings have sinned, what does God do? We see God um, um, slaughtering an animal and clothing these people with it, Adam and Eve. Something died in the stead of Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 15 that Tommy told us about last week, we see animals being slaughtered and a pot walking through it. And Tommy showed us that this represented the judgment that God himself would take in our place when we could not follow through on God's covenant. Friends, God had predetermined for all time, before all time, to actually save us and redeem us. Not because there was something in us, not because there was something that appealed to him, not because somehow he foresaw that we would be good people. No, he did it so that he can actually save us. But you see, we also see there that Jesus was hanging on the cross there for three hours. And you might be wondering, like, Yes, yeah, so if Jesus is bearing our sin, why didn't he have to do it for all time or even for a longer time? Was that time enough? Well, you see, the length of the repayment of a debt is dependent not just on the amount owed, but also on the net worth of the one who is paying the debt. So here's what I mean. So if, if someone owes you 10 naira, Right? Let's say my son owes you 10 naira. Um, you can actually walk up to my son. Maybe his son has given him some money and he can actually give you back on the spot. But if he's owing you 10,000 naira or 20,000 naira, there is no way in all the world that he can actually pay that debt. I have to step in. And so I can, in a moment of time, if my son tried to pay that debt, he's a three-year-old, if my son tried to pay that debt, let's even assume he could work. How, many, how long do you think he would have to work for? But if I owed you 20,000 naira, I could afford to give you that within, I don't know, whatever length of time. <laughs> but then imagine if I owed you $1 billion. 
Everybody shaking their head. Yes, like like just go and just go and die, Emmanuel, and just just forget you cannot, you can never pay that back. But imagine if Jeff Bezos was the one who owed you one billion dollars. Like you even go and sleep. Like this guy, like the debt is as good as paid. That is what is happening here. Jesus is the one who can pay the debt because Jesus is the one who is eternally valuable more than anyone and more than anything else in the world. Do you see? So you think you are a great sinner. You think you've outseen the grace of God. You think that you have done so many bad things and somehow your sins have piled up and you are in this great debt that you can never actually pay. Oh, you think you are a great sinner. Friends, we have an even greater Savior. His name is Jesus and he has paid your debt. He has settled it for you. You see, this is our problem, friends. Our problem is that we are the ones who have sinned against God. Man has sinned against God. And man is the one who is supposed to pay back the debt to God. But somehow we cannot, we cannot pay back that debt. We don't have the funds. We don't have the money. We don't have the good works to pay back the debt we owe God. Only God can pay back that debt. But God has not sinned. God has not done anything. So how will this conundrum be resolved, friends? It can only be resolved not by you walking up good works, not by you doing something to merit the grace and favor of God, only if there is one who is both man and who is both God. In Jesus Christ, we have one who is truly man and who can pay the debt, but one who is also truly God and who can pay the debt. Our sins can be forgiven because we have a great Savior. And this is the love of the cross, friends. It's not a love story like Prince Hakim and Lisa McDowell in coming to America, as though there is something valuable in Lisa McDowell that Prince Hakim has to find. And we are, you know, somehow Lisa McDowell and God is chasing us. It is not even a love story like Hamlet, um, like Romeo and Juliet where they actually love each other, but the circumstances around them make it so difficult. No, no, friends. This is a love story like no other. This is a love story where the one who actually loves is far more valuable than the one who is being loved. Where the ones who are loved are the ones who are rebels, the ones who have sinned, the ones who have broken God's commandment, the ones who ought to be judged. And yet God comes running after us. You see, on the cross, the love of God makes a way to appease the wrath of God without violating the justice of God. The love of God makes a way to appease the wrath of God without violating the justice of God. Jesus Christ comes as one of us, sent by his Father willingly, and takes our punishment upon himself. But lastly, we see here that Jesus died surrendered to God. Jesus has been hanging on the cross for three hours. Jesus has been beaten mercilessly. Jesus has been violated by soldiers. He has been spat upon. Jesus has been ridiculed. Jesus has been put to shame. Like, this is the greatest sub-story ever, if there, if there ever was one. And we come to verse 46 that Mojrola read for us. We see Jesus offering his last words. And Luke tells us that Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. 
of all the ways Jesus could have died. Jesus could have died cursing us. Jesus could have died even ridiculing or, or calling out judgment and punishment to those around him. But Jesus dies committing himself to God. We're told in Luke chapter 22 in the garden that Jesus actually began this entire process committing himself to God. And now he comes to the end, offering himself on the cross, committing himself again to God. But you see, the words Jesus utters here are from the Psalms, precisely Psalm 31. And you see, this Psalm is a prayer that David has written, asking God to deliver him in time of difficulty. But you see, the problem with this Psalm is that it begins with verse 1. And if you see Psalm 31, verse 1 says, in you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. And you see, here's the problem. This psalm is based upon the premise that the one who can pray the contents of the psalm, the one who can pray the prayer of the psalm, is the one who ultimately trusts in God, the one who ultimately finds refuge in God. In other words, David was saying, you can only be delivered by God if you find refuge with God. Are you seeing the problem, friends? The problem is that we all do not seek refuge in God. The problem is that we look to other things. The problem is that we are often like the Jewish leaders and we're like Pilate and we're like the crowd and we're like Herod, looking to other things to find refuge in. We cannot pray this prayer. We cannot ask God for deliverance. We cannot ask God to rescue us. But what is even more striking, friends, is that Jesus himself prays Psalm 31, and he prays Psalm 31, verse 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. But then he omits the second verse. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. Do you see what's happening there? It is as though Jesus is saying, Lord God, I commit myself into your hands. Do not deliver me. Can you imagine the magnitude of this? If there ever was a person who was qualified, infinitely qualified to pray this prayer, it was Jesus. But he doesn't. Because Jesus knows that the only way we can ever get to pray this prayer if he is if he is not delivered by God. The only way we can ever get to pray this prayer, friends, is if Jesus actually steps in on our behalf. Jesus becomes the one who stands in our stead. Jesus becomes the one who bears God's wrath on our behalf. And wonder of all wonders, friends. 
He's dying on the cross in verse 34. And he says, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. He could have called down God's judgment on us. But he goes there, faces God's judgment so that we can be embraced by God. See, sometimes you hear people say things like, the cross is divine cosmic abuse. The, the cross is divine child abuse because God sends his son there as a kind of, as a bad father who just allows his son to face judgment. But you see, what we see here is that Jesus willingly takes our place on the cross. Jesus willingly steps in on our behalf before God and he receives God's judgment on our behalf. So that even though we are ones who no longer, who do not always seek refuge in God, like Psalm 31 says, so that even though we are ones who seek refuge in other things apart from God, we can now pray this prayer. We can now say, Oh God, into your hands I commit myself. Deliver me. Because Jesus himself was not delivered. See, friends, God's holiness exposes sin. God's wrath opposes sin. But God's grace atones for sin. I talked about Barabbas. And you see, the amazing thing about Barabbas is that Barabbas actually did not do anything to deserve his freedom. Barabbas actually walks free. Not because he did anything, but because Jesus Christ stepped in as a substitute for Barabbas. We are not Barabbas this morning. Do you know why? Because Jesus does something even better for us. Barabbas' physical condition was changed, but his heart wasn't changed. But what Jesus does for us on the cross is not just a physical transformation alone. Jesus Christ works a heart change as well. If you are in Christ, if you have become a Christian, if you have been transformed by the grace of God, friends, you have been given a new heart. You have been ransomed, you've been redeemed, you've been rescued, you have been delivered because this one has taken God's judgment in your place. Friends, he has paid it all. Jesus was surrendered by us. Jesus was surrendered by his Father. Jesus was surrendered to God so that we might be the ones who can pray this prayer, so that we might be the ones who have been delivered and rescued by God. Oh yes, he resurrects, and Sunday is coming. But today is Good Friday. And we must pause to reflect on this. So I'm just going to read Luke chapter 23, 50 to 56 for us so that we can linger a bit here and then I'll ask us to pray. So after Jesus has been crucified, now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of, Arima, of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. 
Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb caught in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw his tomb and how Jesus' body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the command. Sunday is coming, but today is Good Friday. And we pause to reflect on what Christ has done for us. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.